You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. What's up, Colorado? Chris Lopez here, and got a new show format that we're bringing to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast. So we are now doing a quarterly update on the commercial real estate market here in Colorado. So I got a great group of people in different industries around town here in a roundtable. Should be a fun discussion. First guest is Tom Conkle with First Integrity Title. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Welcome. William Foy with Spearhead Commercial Capital. Hey, Chris. And then we've got Kevin Mosley and Will Sherman from Kaufman Hagen Real Estate. What's up, guys? Thanks for having us. Glad to have you guys here. Last but not least is Travis Spear with Renovo Financial. Travis, good afternoon. Hey, Chris. Nice to see you again. It went from morning to afternoon from around. There the you table. go. They uh, <laughs> caught that. So, um, you know, we're recording this in early May. And by now, everyone knows that interest rates have gone up and they've gone up pretty dramatically compared to the last couple of decades. So that's going to be the main talking point. That's an impact on deals, uh, the way people are buying things and looking at things. But Tom, before we, record, before we hit recording on here, you started talking about what you're seeing in the interest rate environment. So give us an update and kick off the conversation. You know, I, I, I think, Chris, what, what we've seen a lot is smaller deals are being more impacted and being repriced and actually people having to step away, but the bigger institutional deals are seem to be chugging along. And, um, but you know, from our, my opinion and what I've seen is the impact on the consumer, you know, first home home buyers move up home buyers. It's pushing them back to the rental market, which I think is going to be a plus for multifamily and single family for rent. So you said smaller deals. Define define that because small is relative in the world of commercial. Yeah, small. I would say what we're from our perspective, what we're seeing deals that are five million dollars and below. So more like just the individual. Yeah, you know, individual. Yeah, um, you know, institutional or you know, um, funds, things like that. You know, they're still doing their deals, and but you know, me buying a twenty five unit complex, hundred basis points is a lot. It's a big. It's a big deal and it affects me. And so you see some of the smaller guys just canceling out because of the, the loan terms? Yeah, because I don't think prices, it, these guys can probably tell you better than I can. The spread between ask and what people are willing to pay is not hasn't evened out yet. So I don't think the seller's reality is, you know, seller's reality hasn't caught up with the interest rate. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Yeah, well, you were you were saying that before about especially some if you see some older offering members out there still in the rates in the threes, um, <laughs> might be old or might be a seller with unrealistic expectations. Yeah, you're hoping you're 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 the hundredth uh, caller on that one and that you're going to get some big deal on it. But the um, <clears throat> yeah, we're definitely just kind of seeing that the the different strategies are going to have to kind of come come to light here. We're not going to just going to have everybody kind of focusing on huge value add plays where they can expect a big cash out and a refinance in 12 to 18 months once they start to release and complete all their renovations. So what we're kind of just observing is, you know, cap rates have got to be at least at where debt is. um, And that's just going to be a common trend here moving forward. So if interest rates continue to incrementally rise, we're going to need to have to have the cap rates reflect that as well. And so 
we'll, you know, as Tom already said, the sellers have yet to come around as you know, they often do. They're waiting to, you know, see if they can still get the highest and best number for their properties. But we know now that, you know, assets that were purchased back in, you know, 21 that are in that, you know, two to three year IO term, um, you know, a lot of those owners are going to start to be looking around to see what kind of offers they can get before their planned exit. Well, that's an interesting point because we see we were having some of those conversations um, a couple of years ago, or at least in the last 18 months where, you know, people were looking for maximum leverage on kind of stabilized properties. And, you know, their rate was three and a quarter percent. And we were trying to have the conversation with them saying, hey, if you're signing up for a five-year term, your deal barely works at three and a quarter percent. You yeah. better be able to get the lift and the rents that you that you need um, for this property to continue to work from a lender's perspective five years from now when that note matures. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years and to kind of piggyback on what Will was saying on, you know, uh, OMs and, you know, sellers putting, putting properties out there. You know, we're trying to help the brokers with, you know, realistic debt quotes to provide in their OMs uh, for prospective buyers. And, um, you know, we, we, we're trying, it's, it's hard to get deals to work at 75% leverage anymore, just cause the, there's a big gap between, you know, bid and ask. And, um, quite frankly, the rents and NOI hasn't quite caught up with where the market is. And so we're seeing a lot of these deals pencil out with, you know, rates in the mid fours now, um, you know, let's pencil out more like 60, 65% leverage instead of 70, 75% leverage, like we were seeing before. Um, so it's been kind of a, an interesting trend there. Yeah, one thing that Tom said that I guess maybe is obvious to us, but maybe not to everyone, is that five million and under, yeah, with rates going up 100 uh, basis points, whatever it might be, that you know, your rate's going to be significantly different, and the ability to cover debt is what is what maybe by eating someone up in this space. So maybe you're doing an exchange from a three or four unit or two houses or something like that into a five million dollar purchase, and that rate changed over the last 60 days significantly. Now you can't cover, now you can't finance it without going to where exactly where William was just going was at a lower LTV and most people weren't expecting that, right? And to your other point about high leverage is, you know, clients who were buying stuff, even value add, maybe late last year and six or eight months to get you turned over and, and stabilized. And now you're going to exit that to go for a refinance and maybe rates are 150 basis points higher than they were last fall. Uh, that's going to be interesting because either more equity to the table to get the refinance done, or you're going to go to sell something that you maybe had intended keeping previously. I don't know if you guys, you know, that's a, you know, the value add point, And we were talking about it earlier. And I'd be curious with you guys, if you're advising a buyer who historically has been a value add buyer and, but that view has changed. What do you guys, I mean, if, if I'm a, you know, that's been my historic, my history, well, how's that changed now? If if I'm working with you and you're and I'm going, well, that's what I've always done, but you know, I can't refinance quick and get out of it in 90 days and you know, or a, less than a year and pull cash out. You know, what does that look like now? Um, I mean, that's a question that we're asked every single day. So <laughs> I don't have a super clear answer, but the question every single day is what are the interest rates doing? Yeah. One thing, one thing Kevin and I talk about a lot, cause we think that value add, especially in this, you know, the latter half of this cycle has become <laughs> such a cliche, you know, we're going to add value or value add, you know, we're, we're cons that typically, you know, resonates more with construction people, you know, guys that want to come in, turn the units, release them up and just kind of follow that rinse, wash, repeat. But one, one thing that we talk about extensively is 
value add extends way beyond that. You know, you have operational and management value add, you've got value add on renovations. There's so many different ways to impart your value on a given asset. If you're an investor, if you're a broker, if you're a finance guy, if you're a title company, there's many, many, many ways to add value. And so I guess just with things changing and the, you know, the change of the winds here with interest rates and, you know, the buying climate, it's really going to kind of force people to reevaluate how they're adding value on these different deals. If a property is completely mismanaged, maybe it doesn't need all of the construction and lease turnover right away. Maybe it just needs to be managed properly. And that way, the expense ratio can go down. Therefore, the debt cover increases. And, you know, you're basically, you know, recapitalizing that way versus going out and, you know, waiting in the line at Home Depot and overpaying for a two by four. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to to get the job done. And it's really just going to kind of come down to purely fundamentals as we, as it gets more and more competitive and, you know, interest rates rise, prices come to, you know, there's just a lot of different changes right now that you we're, know, we're facing. On you guys' side of the table, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, the, the Fed towards the end of last year said they were going to move interest rates, what, three to four times this year? I think now but, we're up to six. Or yeah, but like I don't, that. I, do you think it caught some people off guard? Do you think it happened quicker and, yeah. Yeah. you know, the rates moved because the rates in the last, what, 60 days. How much did they moved? I mean, were people really prepared for what was coming? Yeah. Treasury, 10 year treasury is up, uh, over three for the first time since 2018. Um, I think I saw yesterday and it backed off a little bit today, but, um, yeah, I do think that they've gotten a little bit more aggressive than everybody had expected. Um, knowing that we have a, a 50 basis point increase, you know, eminent, um, this week and um, potentially 75 basis points thereafter. So, I mean, I think everybody kind of expected the Fed to roll out, you know, af- like they did after 08, 09, where it was like, hey, quarter point increases, and we'll do that, you know, once or twice a year. And the Fed said, you know, six this year. And then uh, everybody's like, yeah, well, we'll see. Um, and I think there are some, yeah, we'll, we'll see uh, people <clears throat> out there still where it's like, no, this is happening. And um, they have to do it to fight off the inflation um, at some level. So we'll see. I mean, it's, I do think that we'll see rates in the mid fives by the end of the year. And, um, you know, I don't know what that means for 2023. Um, but we'll certainly see it this year. Yeah. I think a lot of people's got like, they knew it was coming, but they got complacent. We've all had an amazing interest rate environment for years and kind of just kind of happy and lazy and relaxing there. Then bam, like they just, they went up and they went up dramatically last couple months. Um, I'm curious because, you know, I, I uh, especially on the lending side and, you know, people have a lot more experience than I have. It, what is the relationship between like inflation rate and cap rate if there is one in terms of performance? Because, you know, I know real estate is such a huge uh, hedge against inflation. A lot of people just park their money there, hasn't slowed down the institutional guys. A lot of individual investors are still parking money in real estate just for that wealth preservation. And I mean, hedge against inflation, where else do you put it? You know, Bitcoin mm-hmm. or the stock markets, those are all super volatile. Um, from like a lending perspective, finance perspective, we're looking at Travis and, and William here. 
is there any type of like rules of thumbs or metrics when it comes to like inflation rate compared to cap rate? Because inflation's what, 7% or so year over year? Or Well, I mean, you know, I guess keep in mind and staying humble that uh, inflation isn't something we've seen, especially in the cycle that I've been in real estate, right? I mean, it wasn't that long where the Fed was fighting to get 2% inflation annually, like less than two years ago, even pre-COVID. And now we're going to be eight or 10%. And I think it, you know, from what I'm hearing, it's going to top off a little bit in the middle of this year, because year over year, we will have already seen that big increase that we're already dealing with. So um, that piece gets interesting. But to your kind of your point about inflation versus cap rates and what that does to lending is that like there's no law that says that loans have to be at 70 or 75% loan to value, right? That's just where we've gotten comfortable in this space. <laughs> and so to the point previously that William made though, was that as cap rates, uh, if if they don't uh, expand and interest rates continue to go up, that loan to value has to come down to hit coverage. And that really all comes full circle back to Tom's earlier point about the smaller deals falling out. There's just a reason for that. But the big deals are going to continue on because you're talking about guys who are placing billions of dollars, right? Not placing a few million, uh, maybe just in the downstroke. So uh, you know, I think the banks are probably, or lenders in general, are probably okay because uh, leverage is going to come down to make sure it all covers. And that might be different than some of the last cycles that we've seen. Yeah, I'd agree there. And I mean, I don't, there's been a lot of talk on whether this inflation is transitory in any way um, because we've had supply chain issues and that's driving costs up. And, you know, that drives inflation at some level. But, you know, uh, I, I think that the Fed has been playing catch up and maybe they're just trying to build in a little extra barrier um, in the in the cost of funds in case the recession does um, happen because of the inflation and the rising interest rates. So they'll have a little bit of room to to back those off next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, every deal works. It's just a matter of where the leverage is, right? right? I mean, um, so if you put more money down, and I think that's really what's driving real estate now is all these people who are selling out at the maximum price, they're not paying capital gains tax on on what they net from the sale of that property. They're going to roll it into something else because where else do they put that? Um, so, you know, until liquidity dries up, um, which I don't see any real sign of, I mean, people are going to continually roll into assets. It's just going to be at a lower loan to value, which yeah. I'm sure the lenders love because they probably got pretty nervous, um, you know, putting as much max leverage debt out there as they had. And at, you know, I think the next two or three years will really tell us what the results of that are because people will be rolling off of their five-year loan at three and a quarter. And will that, you know, asset still perform? Um, but you know, for now we haven't seen the, the refi business is dead, um, for obvious reasons, unless you have a maturity. Um, and then, you know, the, but there's still plenty of acquisition activity out there. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Kevin. I mean, you, I know, you know, you're, you're talking a lot of buyers and, and owners out there. Like, what are the biggest, um, like, pain points or concerns that you're hearing from people at on like, the brokerage side as you're looking at interest rates, potentially doing like a 1031, you know, mm -hmm. 1031 uh, trade up and swap? Like, what are you mm -hmm. hearing? Um, I mean, the biggest thing I'm hearing is the question, like, what are you hearing? What are you hearing with interest rates? <laughs> What's happening? So, like, it's great to be on this podcast because this is the question every single person is asking. Um, but a couple thoughts that came to my mind were that why some of these smaller deals or what we're calling smaller deals <laughs> under 5 million are, are potentially falling apart is because these guys were kind of riding a wave that it felt like an appreciation market or it has been an appreciation market. And it's kind of more, it takes a little more research and due diligence to find out if your property, if the if your property is selling for more because the value of the dollar is less or because you actually added value to the property and 
changed the perceived rents that you could get in that property. So there's still like value add place to be had there, but the folks that are just kind of like, I'm going to buy and just sit and do nothing, uh, but still are able to flip out of that property in one year or two years without actually, you know, adding value, whether it's through construction or like operations, like Will was saying. Um, We have to fight that battle a lot where it's like, we've got people trading out of an asset they bought less than a year ago. And the lenders, it's like, well, hey, they bought this for less than a year ago at, you know, five million bucks. Now they're selling it at eight and a half. What's the story there? I mean, is that just true market appreciation Mm -hmm. or did they actually do something that the property value creation? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so we do have, I mean, a lot of lenders in that scenario are like, well, okay, what's, you know, what's their loan to cost? You know, what's what was the seller's true loan to cost in this thing? And that tells them, you know, exactly what they did for to add value if it's not just market, you know, rising tides raise all, mm-hmm. all you know, ships. But um, we do have to back that up with with something for, for buyers um, in that scenario because it's not, you know, it has to be like a true value add by renovating units, increasing NOI, whatever it is. It can't just sit on it and then flip it in six months for, you know, 40% more. You know, dev- okay. this might be a dumb question, but uh, along that and I'm gonna. I'm sort of gonna ask a question towards the lenders. Who cares if I didn't do anything, right. and the the tide rose, and I and I made thirty percent, and I didn't do anything. What does it matter? Who cares? Two years it, ago, yeah, you know, like, the really, open market is the great now. equalizer. That's it. it so tell you, what I go. I'm asking you because I could see me selling an asset, and a lender questioning. Well, you made three million dollars in a year. What did you do? And I'd say nothing. Someone will pay for it, right? It yeah. doesn't affect the seller. It affects the buyer right, okay. from, the, from a from a debt perspective, you know, and um, where the appraisal is going to come in, right? Because, and it goes back to the loan to value question. It's like, okay, sure, we can call this a four cap, but your your debt, um, and that gives us the appraisal value, but your debt's only going to work at 50% loan to value or something I, because the NOI hasn't gone anywhere, but the price has gone away. I guess my argument would be as the seller, I'd say, good for you as the buyer. Now you have upside. I didn't do anything to create value. Now you have opportunity to create value. But is that the change that's happening where your argument would have made sense two years ago and is making a little less sense as the interest rates? Yeah, I could see that. And, you know, but it's interesting because I've never heard it put that way, William. And it was like, I know how I am. And, you know, I look around this room and I definitely have more gray. And, (laughs) and, and, And I've been through a couple of these cycles and it's why all the guys on that side, they're table have hair and this side don't. I, I don't know if that was a setup chris or not but but i've been through these cycles a couple of them and what i would tell you and i wish i would have brought a historical thing is transaction volumes if you go back to like 2014 and 15 rates were a lot higher than they are now mm-hmm. what and were the, they around then i just five and a half yeah, yeah. so it's just uh, so what we're today, so what right? we're talking about and i gotta tell you transaction volumes coming out of 08 and 09 mm-hmm. we were killing it I mean, there were, but we were coming out of 08 and 09 when people were freaked out. Right. But 14, 15 rates were five and a half percent. And it was, I mean, we were, I mean, everyone was celebrating. So, you know, I, I guess for me, who's been through this a couple of times, it's sort of in perspective. I know there's a lot of people sort of semi hitting the panic button right now. But if you look back seven years ago, we're going to be in the same rate environment. And it was not a bad environment to do deals in. It's all perspective. It is. Yeah. So I yeah, mean, if you're putting out 10-year terms at, you know, four and a half percent and people freak out because it doesn't start with a two anymore, it's like, well, hey, look at, you know, go back 
seven years, right? And and like I said, that ten year Treasury was at three percent for the first time since twenty eighteen. Well, sounds like a long time ago. It really wasn't right. that long ago. In the grand scheme of things, four and a half percent over the course of ten years, that's pretty good. You know, it's not six. Uh, we might see six, but that's still the same as it was like a handful of years ago before we saw the lowest rates in the history of the planet um, because of. We're gonna things. we're gonna definitely see you know you know you hear a lot of you know I'll, I'm a numbers I'm a numbers person you know I, I just I just focus on the numbers we're gonna see who actually is willing to really rest on their numbers because mm-hmm. when they're looking at their at their analyses and they're saying okay well oh wow I'm at a you know six and a half percent cash on cash here okay well that's a you know pretty decent pretty decent return for cash on cash I know that a few years ago people were looking for double digits but you know when you kind of weigh inflation and opportunity cost and kind of sitting there saying well okay what if if rates do you know bounce back up to five and a half or five seven five you know do I want to be sitting here with a bunch of money on my hands and then not able to make things pencil but you know when things pencil you know it's it's we're gonna see you know the true um you know the true players come come to the forefront because they'll be willing to execute and they'll be willing to to, you know, believe in themselves and, and bet on themselves, frankly, to, to get deals done. And I mean, it's funny, we're talking about five or 10 years ago, and I'm not old enough to have lived through the cycle, but even in the early nineties, you know, rates were at 8%, 9%. And before that they were at 12. So well, I know. it's just as funny that we're, you know, really speaking only surrounding historic lows. Yeah, you know, for for our entire basis here. You know, I'll scare you guys. I remember the first house I bought, my interest rate was 13%. And I just thought that was normal. You know, as a 20-something-year-old, I go, wow, Happy 13%. To be a percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just thrilled. You know, so the reality is, you're right. I mean, people will settle into this reality and, you know, figure out how to get deals done. Mm-hmm. How long does it take? I'm looking at you, Tom, like, because a lot of this is just, I mean, you know, it, it's as Kevin said, kind of people's perception just, whoa, okay, we're, we were cruising here, hit a little speed bump. Like, you know, this is not like a major market change, but it feels like some whiplash just because of how fast, how long does it usually take for people's perceptions to change or kind of get in line with the market reality? Or do you know? <laughs> no, you know what? That's a great question. It, it's, you know, I, I think it depends, but it, I would say, you know, it's six months to a year sure. for people to, you know, um, a friend of mine, Marcel Arsenal, always talks about you develop scar tissue. And this is, <laughs> the, people are developing scar tissue right now. Maybe some and, gray hairs. Too. Yeah, you know what? And then after you have enough scar tissue, you look down and you go, oh, wow. You know, I learned from that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so people are developing scar tissue right now. And, you know, but it'll make them better on the other end. Feels like a filtering process where the wave, you can just ride the wave necessarily. Um, and might require a little more underwriting or looking at the numbers like Will was saying there. Yeah. So something that, I mean, we're, you know, we've been talking about rising interest rates and a big part of that's going to, I think, be still good for investors is the rising uh, rental rates. Like rents have gone up dramatically. I mean, the last handful of years, especially last year, I mean, it's been double digit in quite a few submarkets around here. So we still have increasing, you know, rent rates going on. Vacancies are still very low, and when vacancies are low, rents go up. Um, And as you pointed out at the beginning, Tom, you know, with interest rates going up, they're going up on the residential side as well, which is bumping out a lot of first-time home buyers, which is turning more people into renters. Um, So, what's the table's perspective on rent forecast? And how are lenders, how are investors looking at rents? And I'm really curious on incorporating pro formas. 
because I've been playing around with like my assumptions. I'm like 3% price increase, 3% rent increase anymore. Uh, I know that's conservative, but it's just not realistic right now. So I'm kind of curious people's opinion on that. Chris, I'm really glad you brought this up just because that's a huge reason why Kevin and I, and I think a lot of brokers are excited right now about the market climate because we know that we're still supply constricted. There's not, it's hard to bring new inventory online, whether you're a national builder doing master plan communities or you're an infill developer doing, you know, 12 townhomes at a time. We know that we're still, it's still as hard to bring new homes online, rental product or for sale product. And you're right. There's people still moving to the Colorado area, and there's no reason why we shouldn't still continue to see rents incrementally increase. You know, I think that it was crazy, you know, 90 to 120 days ago, people would look at some pro forma rents and and kind of laugh. And then the owner would start to get them. And then it, <laughs> the other side of the table was then laughing back at them. So I think, um, you know, we're still going to continue to see rents go up just because they're, we're still you know, it's supply and demand. There's not enough space for the people that want to move into these desirable areas. And so that's, I think, some of the, you know, most encouraging data that we're, you know, following that as people continue to buy and sell properties, that they will be able to increase their NOI. And I know that, you know, the lenders at this table and and anyone that's not at this table all love that. Um, And so that's just going to be one of the best ways for deals to make deals pencil and to make sure that, you know, as Kevin said, through the filtering process, the best operators are really going to shine over the next, you know, several months as they continue to lease up properties at at great rates and stabilize them at great rates with good tenants and um, and continue to see success. Here's something to think about on the back end of that conversation is those developers and builders are seeing still a lot of price increases around materials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But think about their floating interest rates in this environment too. And they don't know. I mean, we have a couple mm-hmm. projects where you know, lenders generally unwilling to lock rate for more than, you know, 30 days, um, sometimes 60 days. And so if you're in a construction note, um, it's always or typically always floating, you know, so you're just writing prime plus to wherever mm-hmm. it goes by the end of the year. It's pretty hard to project not only your materials, but where your interest rate's going to be towards the end of that project and how that project's going to pencil out for the long run. So you think about some of these, um, maybe not necessarily single family um, builds because those are usually the big guys, but some of these, you know, smaller multifamily, um, you know, infill projects, it gets pretty hard, um, you know, if you're a developer. So uh, as it relates to the supply, um, I don't see anybody jumping into that market and, and really trying to, I'm going to build more units than I ever have this year, you know, with um, interesting interest rates and, and supply chain. I mean, you've done quite a bit of like that smaller development, you've done it yourself, yeah. maybe a lot of investors too, Travis, you know, like a lot of this, you know, these 10, 20 townhome infills we see, what do you see in that market? Yeah. So we're, I mean, looking at a couple of projects now for new construction and, and like parts of Lakewood and Wheat Ridge and things like that, where people are going to build for rent rather than to resell. Uh, the biggest challenges in municipalities. I mean, in Denver, you used to get a, be able to get a permit on a one through four family in four or five months. And now it's like six or eight months. So on multifamily five and above, you used to be able to get permits in about a year. And now you're talking 14, 18 months. Oh, so, 
I mean, it's slowing everything down. And so how does that, I mean, not only do you not know your uh, market exposure risk on the back end, but also as uh, William was saying, the cost of material, I mean, all of that's moving really rapidly, right? And then of course, the availability of labor. So it's really hard to pin down your your price to build. I'm working on a, a small uh, new construction project in Southwest Denver now personally, um, just went under contract, close in a couple months, maybe start building by the end of the year. But we don't really know what the costs are going to be. We have some good ideas and you know, we can use the information we have today, but we're going to deliver at around 600 a unit. So like, I think the average price in Denver probably next month is going to be 800,000. So as long as millions, right. I mean, so as long yeah. as you're delivering the right product at the right price, you're probably going to be okay. Even if that price continues to go up at, uh, the the good news is we have a percentage increase on, on uh, value of real estate at six or 8%. It's considerably higher than a, even a 10% increase on materials, right? So um, it's going to be interesting. I, I don't know. And and so the rent uh, product, I think, will continue to work. And we were just talking briefly, Will brought up uh, before we started about the uh, build for rent space. And I think we will see more of that because uh, there's a better opportunity in some of these cases to hold this stuff for 12 or 24 months and then exit on long-term gains or don't exit or uh, have it in a way where you could sell a handful of units, but not all of them just kind of brings a lot of flexibility uh, for the owner or for the the, the end user. And so uh, rents are challenging for me right now because it's difficult to track. Like there's no comps for rents really. And like, they're going up so fast (laughs) that (laughs) it's like, it's so hard to know. Like, even if you're underwriting a single family house, like what's it going to rent for? Because you see a Zillow ad and, but you don't have any idea what it actually went for. And so the rents are so difficult right now. There might be some upside where people are just behind operationally. Um, or maybe you're doing new construction, you have a dollar per foot that you have in mind that you're going to exit uh, or get rents on the back end, but you might blow that out of the out of the water. So it's uh, it's difficult to know right now where rents are. I'm curious, on your development project, like, you know, everyone always is building like margin. How much extra margin or padding do you build in with all just, you know, labor and, and uh, material? Yeah, issues? I mean, we, so whenever we underwrite a deal, we, we try to do it based on today's numbers. So what the cost to build is today and what you're going to sell at today. That way, if either goes up and hopefully uh, lock and step, then it's like no big deal, right? I don't mean that casually, but I mean, you should you should be reflected, right? There shouldn't We shouldn't see a huge increase of cost to build and the prices of the real estate stay flat or come down, right? right. Because it just wouldn't make sense. So um, you try to do it as accurately as you can today with the information you have. Sure, you might build in a little bit of a buffer, but you don't want to uh, juice up the end resale value. You want to make sure that's accurate. So you've kind of worked them in today's numbers and and hope that when you get there, you still have the similar margin. So a question for, for the group. As we talked about, I, I think all of us agree that rents are going to continue to rise. And I don't know dramatically, but they're going to continue to rise and availability is going to become more scarce. What does that do to the affordability factor? I mean, we've already recognized we have a huge affordability issue, not just in this city, but in this country. Is it going to, is it going to create more of an afford, affordability issue for people not being able to afford all those people that just got pushed from being potential home buyers because interest rates who have now become renters just pushed that other group out again. And I, I have some concerns about that. I have some concerns about, you know, the affordability issues. And if rent rents keep going up, it, you know, and it trickles down, it's a class, a stuff, right. B, C. Yeah. Are we going to start pricing people out of the C stuff? Well, I mean, this could probably be its own separate podcast episode in and of itself, but I mean, I guess the short answer is yes. And it really depends on who you ask. You know, I think there's obviously 
you know, two camps. There's some people that think that this needs to happen through regulations. The city of Denver, for example, is by any plan, any new construction plans for, I think, 10 or more units starting after June 30th are going to have to have where I think they're saying a 25 to 30 percent affordability component. What that actually looks like, I think, remains to be seen if that's going to be a proportion of, you know, average median income or AMI, or if it's going to be, you know, HUD and Section 8 type housing. We don't really know yet. But, you know, I think that other the other side of the camp is saying that, well, okay, approve more projects and we can bring more inventory online. And then we will then, by creating supply, we will reduce demand. Um, so I think it's it's obviously a double-edged sword because I think that, you know, both there's solid points on both sides of the table there. Um, but we, you know, we know in, in Denver for a fact that, you know, stuff that is submitted July 1st and, and on is definitely going to have to have that, have the discussion. So, you know, we're, um, we're working on a deal right now that does have an Allura in place, which is a land use restriction mm-hmm. agreement. Um, but you know, we're, I think that's definitely going to become more and more of a commonality for anything that's in, in Denver, you know, for these larger deals, because moving forward, they're going to have to have that. And really what that means, um, is essentially it just as an agreement between the proper, you know, between the city and the owner that a certain portion of their units are going to have to be at a certain threshold of affordability. How are they getting that to pencil? I mean, <laughs> well, so that's, I guess that's part of the interesting, you know, nuance to it. And so I think that every, whenever, you know, when anybody first hears affordability, they automatically think section eight and they say, okay, well, this is just, you know, you know, it's this urban development. Okay, great. So now basically what, you know, is the government paying for They're on vouchers and everything like that. So what we're actually, you know, there's a lot of different types of affordable housing. And one of which is actually not overly market restrictive, meaning that if it is a proportion of median income, they, the city puts out a matrix that basically gives you the maximum gross income that that person can make in a year to qualify for the unit. So if it's 70, 80% AMI. Exactly. And those are not, are not too restrictive just because, you know, if you live in downtown Denver and you're making, you know, $65,000 a year, that's a pretty qualified tenant, you know, in Cap Hill and um, uptown and, and, you know, places around there, city park. So that's not, you know, gonna really curb that, you know, um, you know, high portion of return just because that was more like more more than likely, you know, near your target demographic anyway. It's where you get a little bit more affordable to the 50%, 50 AMI, 60 AMI, um, and the section 42 and section eight housing that then it becomes a little bit of a different conversation. But in those instances, then you're getting, there should be some tax incentives as well in place that'll also, you know, alter the NOI, um, you know, on the back end. So it's a, you know, it definitely, you know, I think one of the recurring themes has been, you know, having a lot of different tools in your toolbox. And as we move forward with, you know, interest rates rising and, you know, rents still changing. So I think this just kind of reiterates that, that, you know, to be a qualified investor and operator moving forward, you're going to have to be reasonably educated on this, you know, be pretty aggressive and in tune with where rents are. And it, it all just kind of fits into the, you know, the overall ecosystem of it all. I, I want to pick your brain on all that. Like, I know very little about the, all the land use stuff, restrictions, but that would be fascinating to pick your brain on more. So I do know we're running up about the 30-minute mark now here. I'm going to put you guys on the spot, do a quick, like, rapid-fire question as we wrap up here. Give you a choice of two questions to answer. One is give 
an idea as far as what you think of an opportunity is now for investors where you think, hey, with what we're seeing in the market, this is a good asset class or a good trend to follow on. Or if you want to uh, stick your head out there and give any type of like market predictions, uh, do that as well. I'm curious to the roundtable. And uh, since you were uh, pointing out the way we started earlier, Tom, I'll start with Travis here and go left to right. <laughs> um, so Travis. So the, the, it was uh, either market prediction or um, opportunity. Opportunity you see. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, I guess I'd go the uh, opportunity route. I what's I think going to be interesting uh, going forward as rates continue to increase and maybe there'll be cap rate expansion and maybe there won't is still a good opportunity to use exchange funds. And I just think about my own portfolio where, you know, I've got projects, you know, single family houses that I might've bought using different types of financing 10 years ago with five or $6,000 out of pocket. Now I might have hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity. If I go trade that into a project today, that's maybe at a four cap and I quote unquote overpay for something, um, I've traded up equity that was kind of a free ride. And so I don't need to necessarily perform better. Um, in the cash flow perspective, but if I had a better asset that was easier to manage and maybe had a better uh, upside long term, that I would feel good about that. And I think there's probably a lot of people like me who are in the same scenario. Probably one thing that holds me back in that space is the interest rates, as we've discussed, because you might have something really low uh, now or maybe not even a loan at all. And uh, it changes that that kind of takeout. But I think there's still going to be opportunities there to get good kind of quality assets, even if you're not stealing them uh, for long term hold. Great. Will. Um, I think one, so is prediction or investment or opportunity, strategy, yeah, or- opportunity. I think one of the biggest opportunities moving forward is going to be on, on property management and being a qualified property manager and leaser of units and, and new, uh, new products. So if you can be extremely effective on that front and make sure your management costs are, are low and that your leasing rates are as high as they can be, and that you're very in tune with your immediate rental market around your portfolio, I think that that's going to be a, a great way to shine here um, moving forward. Great. Kevin, looking um, at you next. Well, I love Will's answer. I completely agree. <laughs> you can't just copy it though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, like kind of to answer both of them simultaneously, I feel as if there's these little pockets as far as the market that are appearing, whether it's like Old Town Arvada, Westminster, Littleton, where folks are you know, able to have a little more affordable rent, but still have these kind of more cool hit places that are showing up in those little pockets. Um, I think that there might be a little bit of a move from the downtown market more to, yeah. Sur- like the, like the path of progress or, areas. Yeah, sur- yeah. Instead of paying for, you know, these class A, very yeah. expensive uh, things downtown when there's not necessarily a need to go to the office as much as there used to be more working from home, uh, that's such a good point. I really, and then you already see a hat growing in like Littleton or Arvada, Westminster, where it's little mini versions of what was happening downtown and, uh, Glendale. And yeah, there's some cool this. walkability neighborhoods sure. like old yeah. Arvada, look downtown exactly. Littleton or. Yeah. And to Will's point, like, I think the market may not have caught up to that yet, but there's some opportunity to really, you know, add value and uh, push rents over in those type of areas. There are breweries everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, just yeah. buy next to a brewery, right? Yeah. yeah. Just ask me. Yeah, that's an inter- interesting point. You'd think about like some of these suburbs where like Castle Rock, there's starting to be like right. massive multifamily builds there, which you hadn't seen before. Um, and you, I, I, having lived there for a while, I was like, is there a market for this? And there obviously is. 
um, because that walkability and kind of cool small community type of stuff. But um, I would say something that we've seen, and I wonder if it'll be a continuing trend or um, maybe something people should consider is if you are, you know, heavy in, in multifamily and maybe you're at the end of your rope on a, on a property is we have seen people entertaining triple net stuff um, versus like a multifamily just to try to chase the yield a little bit further there and have it be less of a, I want to say time suck, but it's, it's a little bit more manageable in some cases because you don't have as many expenses. Um, you've got, you know, tenants in there that, that maybe um, uh, are a little bit stronger than just your average person and, and they're, how they are affected by market conditions and such. So, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe a shift to, to, um, you know, triple net type of, uh, asset class might be different, uh, than, than multifamily, which has traditionally been the darling. Great. Tom, last but not least. I'll go a little bit different than these guys. I'll look at outlook. I think with stress comes opportunity. And I think when your competition is sort of sweating, it's, it's a time you can win. And you can win because you're smart and you're thoughtful. And so I, I, I you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity over the next 12 to 36 months. I think there's a ton of capital sitting on the sideline. There's a lot of people that have been positioning themselves for this to happen. And I think you'll see a lot of those opportunistic buyers take advantage of people that weren't prepared for this. And so I'm always the glass is half full, but I, you know, Stress creates opportunity. So that's sort of where I'm at. Um, I'll end on mine. I, I agree with the outlook on yours, Tom. Like, especially I often look at like what bigger and smarter guys, like you see institutional investors. Hey, they're still gobbling up. They're still buying. I really trust, you know, all the guys and their spreadsheets behind them. They are much smarter than I am. So I, I take their lead. I also think seller financing or assumable loans. I mean, now I've seen interest rates going up. I have no experience in that world, uh, but I'm very eager because I've read about many, many stories of people using assumable loans or seller financing. I am personally interested in seeing more of those deals and hopefully doing some myself. So that's kind of my outlook. So everyone, this turned out great. I love the format. Love getting everyone here. I appreciate uh, everyone taking the good hour out of the day. I know it's uh, everyone's very busy. Love having everyone here. I'll make sure everyone's... Uh, Contact details are in the show notes. If you guys have questions, feedbacks, rebuttals, oh, reach out to us. Like, we want tips, we want ideas, we love debating. We could spend another three hours doing this. Uh, but thank you, everyone. Tom, thank you. William, Kevin, Will, Travis, I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank Thanks you. A lot.